We feel the nice, um, cool breezes through the uh, meditation hall this evening. Um, it's interesting in the, the course of the day how uh, the atmosphere changes one uh, hour, one moment to the next. And uh, it's such an obvious parallel to our own mind states, uh, not being directly related. The um, just earlier today, uh, I was thinking as it was sort of getting the temperature was getting warmer and warmer, and I was sitting here feeling hot and sticky. I was wondering why do why does this seem so unfamiliar? It's a very peculiar feeling, and. Uh, and then I realized, oh, this is, uh, in California when it gets hot, you don't get sticky because the air is bone dry. So I thought, oh, that's why it feels different. It took me about an hour or so to figure that one out. <laughs> so first of all, I thought, maybe, this, maybe I've got a fever. Maybe there's something wrong with me. <laughs> I feel all sweaty. This isn't usual. Maybe I ate something or maybe I got some bug. And then I thought, oh, no, it's not a bug. It's just the weather. <laughs> And then as the, the, the warmth of the day increased, and, uh, yeah, and there was the first sitting of the afternoon, even though we had a, a walking period, first of all, you know, the first sitting of the afternoon, is, there's always uh, the tendency towards this sort of, uh, the, um, the samadhi of the slug <laughs> uh, syndrome. And uh, peaceful, but not exactly illuminated. <laughs> And uh, so you, and one could feel this sort of heaviness and density in the air. And then we walk outside, suddenly we see huge black clouds and the, the, uh, the wind coming in. And we say, oh, thunderstorm, oh, right. Thunderstorm in the air. And then uh, we have a, a good downpour and a few claps of thunder and the, the air clears and suddenly, oh, fresh, cool. It's all different. Uh, so it made me think of the times when the, in Thailand um, the hot season runs from, uh, say, the end of March through till, um, through till June. And uh, in May you start to get the first thunderstorms of the season. April's, April's the real cooker. And then May you start to get the first few thunderstorms of the year. And what happens um, is that uh, everyone in the monastery starts to get grumpy. And I mean, pretty, people are not exactly cheerful in the hot season anyway. But then people get really grumpy. And then another day goes by and they're getting, everyone's getting seriously grumpy. And, uh, and then there'd be a, a, a thunderstorm, big you know, flashbang, crash a quick burst of, of rain, the air clears and everyone's suddenly cheerful. And it was just like, you know, turning a dial on a you know, on a, a, a radio or a, a heater or something. It's just, you turn it this way, you get this, you turn it that way, you get that. And uh, it's really amazing. Uh, that kind of connection of the mood was just what the weather was doing. And how... Uh, how um, we can take everything so personally... 
You know, we can sit here thinking, oh, I've got a real drowsiness problem. Oh, why am I feeling so grumpy today? Or, oh, I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm sickening for something. I'm covered in sweat. <laughs> that never happens. I must be ill. And it's not personal at all. It's nothing to do with, with, uh, with us as an individual. It's just uh, the influence of the, of the weather in that circumstance. So practicing Dhamma is really uh, a lot to do with extending that same insight you know, across the board, across the whole spectrum of our, of our experience. Because we say, oh, well, that's just the weather, but the rest is me. <laughs> or if it's not me, it's, it's you know, him next to me, or, or her, you know, or the institution or something that's making me uh, grumpy or unhappy or, or um, giving me uh, uh, hope or excitement. We, um, we, make, uh, we, we concretize so much, we personalize things so much. And that uh, practicing Dhamma is a lot to do with, with uh, seeing through that personalizing habit, that the, um, the conditioning that exists for us as, as human beings to make everything so personal, to do with me, to do with you, to do with the society, the, the institution, the family. It's all, so, uh, it's all so personal, the way that we relate to it. And... Um, Particularly in our, our Western conditioning, that again, not to sort of be harping on the uh, individualism, but um, you know, when when the excellence of the individual is is the sort of the ultimate goal of of uh, of life, you know, which is very much what's put in front of us in the West through our education and, and the conditioning society that you know the the winning the individual triumphing, me winning is the ultimate happiness, right? Yeah, that uh, me getting the prize, me uh, winning the job, me getting the contract, me... Uh, uh, and even though on an ideological level, uh, we, uh, we might think, well, I'm not like that. <laughs> uh, it's, it's amazing how strong, even though on, uh, one, one sort of region of our idealism rejects that as a, as a, a principle, Yet it's uh, woven into our, us at a, a cell, cellular level, that kind of um, importance of, uh, of the individual or the, or the uh, absolute reality of the individual and how uh, me succeeding um, is uh, you know, th- that which is of ultimate worth in life. And we scarcely stop to think, well, what is success? <laughs> what is winning? What is that? Um, we don't have to look too far before we see that our, our judgments have to get very narrow. We have to define what is of value um, to us in life to see that me succeeding at one thing can be um, uh, an exact counterpart of me failing deeply at something else. The fact that I, I uh, am putting a lot of energy into one thing, aiming to do one thing, so that maybe succeeding at meditation is is me failing at family life, <laughs> or me uh, succeeding in business is me you know, ruining my uh, my emotional nature, or me succeeding in academia 
is me uh, failing as a as a reasonable human being, <laughs> able to to uh, to function with with other uh, people, other situations. So what we we're trying to do with with uh, the practicing the Buddha Dhamma, uh, investigating that, and living by that, training ourselves in that, is. Um, Say, so learning to understand this whole personalizing process, how we, we make everything, we cast everything, we view the, the world, internal and external, so much through this lens of, of me and I and mine and, and the personality. And it's, it's not to condemn it or, or to, to even criticize it. You know, it's like we, are, uh, we have personalities and egos for very good reasons. They, they play a very important role in life. They are... Uh, they enable us to get by and to, to function as part of the human group. But the problem comes when the ego or the personality you know, takes over the whole show, when it kind of grabs the wheel and, and uh, wants to run things. I often compare this to like um, uh, a three-year-old saying, I want to drive, I want to drive. And you say, oh sure, please, you take over. You know. <laughs> Where would you like to go? I'll push the pedals for you, you steer. <laughs> Or asking a three-year-old what they want to have for for, for a supper every night. See, like, well, you decide. What would you like? And so you'd be having chocolate pudding and <laughs> and ice cream for eternity. So that um, it's important to to say get it begin to get a perspective on uh, on this this kind of dimension of of our world. So during the course of a day, like today, you know, this is the first day of the retreat. And uh, how many people have we each been during the course of today? Been the, the, the noble yogi, diligent, committed, hell-bent on Nibbana, resolute, determined, unwavering. We've been the, the quivering wimp. The uh, yeah, the helpless failure, the uh, the sneak thief, the um, the cheat, the uh, the arrogant idiot, the the kindly gentle friend, the mother, the child, the elder, the leader, the follower. All of, I mean, I don't. <laughs> we all have our own list, um, but uh, how many different people? How many different roles we we assume during the course of a day? When you think of your father, you're a child. When when you think of your partner, then you know, you're a, you're a lover. When you think of your your work situation, then you're a, a, you're the boss, or you're the the underdog, or you're the uh, Colleague, you think of you, you know, the different roles that we have. We flip in and out of them, or even not in terms of personality. When 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 the temperature gets gets uh, cranked up, then it's like I'm the hot one. I am heat. <laughs> I am what I what am I? I am hot. <laughs> That's what I am. I am hotness. Or uh, or restless. I am I am restless. Or I am concentrated. I'm succeeding. 
I'm getting somewhere in my practice. <laughs> I'm getting nowhere in my practice. I am both getting somewhere and getting nowhere in my practice. Neither getting somewhere nor getting nowhere in my practice. You know, just if we made a little list, if we had a little meter that was sort of running at our <laughs> in our zabutons, the sort of checking the arrival and departure of different beings, a kind of being tracker, entity counter of all the different beings we become and 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 cease to be during the course of a day. I mean, they probably run out of digits. You know, we need to. They'd run into the ten thousands. And uh, so, which is the real me? Which is the real one? What is, what, uh, is it? The one that we like, or the one that shouts loudest, or the the one that's around most often? Oh, this is a such an important principle, and one of the um, the great blessings of of uh, the Buddha's teaching is how directly uh, his words and his guidance points us to the way to, to really understand is the creation of personality, the creation of the sense of self, and guiding us to, to be able to understand that, to see through it, to, to, to know how it works, and to no longer be dominated by that. And this is the, um, the first of the what are called the fetters, or the, 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 those things which are uh, needed to be, uh, which need to be understood, penetrated, to be um, fully seen, known clearly, in order for us to, to know and to be established on the, the path to, to freedom, to awakenness, to enlightenment. This, uh, what they call sakayaditi, or sometimes known as the personality view or the embodiment view. Uh, just to do a little Pali etymology, the um, the prefix sa, S-A, means the true or real. Kaya means the, the body or form. And ditti means the view. So in a way it means the, the, the view of the um, the reality of the of the body, of the of the person. Now, oftentimes, when we, we encounter the Buddha's teachings on, on selflessness, it can become kind of confusing. Um, because you know, you, different people represent it in different ways. And, and the, it seems as though the Buddha didn't really intend the teachings on anatta, on selflessness, to be some kind of philosophical position you know, that you take, another, another view to grasp hold of and, and believe in. So sometimes you, you read it, more often than not you read, you read books that say Buddhists believe they have no self, or Buddhists have no self, or no soul. Or, um, and, um, and sometimes the, the people who sort of got into Buddha Dharma out of a, uh, from a more sort of anti-Christian tilt say, you know, get very vehement about this. They say, the Buddha said we have no soul, there is no soul. <laughs> it's, uh, or no self, this is uh, the Atman is a Hindu heresy. No Atman, no self. Um, and so it's important to understand how, or to reflect on, on how the Buddha used the, this language of anatta, 
which is like Atta is the Pali for the Sanskrit word Atman. So the Sanskrit for Anatta would be Anatman. And it really means uh, more uh, not self rather than no self. It's not. And when the Buddha, the only time the Buddha was asked straight out in the, the, the scriptures, um, is there a self? Or is there, uh, or is there no self? He refused to answer. This is a character called Vachugota, who is uh, one, of, one of these um, makes repetitive characters who makes repetitive appearances. He was very devoted to the Buddha, but he, he was a wanderer from a different different sect, and he'd he'd show up and and pump the Buddha with various different philosophical tangles he got himself into. So one time he came to the Buddha and said, "Does the self exist?" And the Buddha remained silent, didn't answer. He said, "Well, does the self not exist?" And again, the Buddha remained silent. So Vashagata, being befuddled by this, then then uh, pays his respects and, and, set, and, and heads out and goes away. So Ananda, Venerable Ananda, the Buddha's kindly attendant, is always ready to patch things up and try and <laughs> make things right, then uh, chases after Vajagata and tries to explain to him why the Buddha was silent. And... Uh, Anyway, then Ananda, because uh, he's afraid that Vajrakot is going to think that the Buddha doesn't really understand or doesn't know, and that's why he didn't reply. So he says to Vajrakot, he mustn't think that the Master doesn't understand. You know, there's, there, there are reasons why he's not saying this to you. So then Ananda goes to the Buddha and says, well, why was it that you didn't answer Vajrakota? You know, And the Buddha said, well, if when he said, he asked me the question, is there a self? Then if I had answered yes, then would that have been in accordance with the teachings that I give that um, on the, uh, the, the fact that the body is not self, feelings are not self, perceptions are not self, mental formations are not self, consciousness is not self, the five khandas, the five um, attributes, aspects of body and mind. And then Anders says, well, no, it wouldn't be in accord with that. And the Buddha says, well, uh, and then if, uh, and if, when he said, uh, is there no self? I had said, yes, there is no self. Then he would have thought, well, I had a self when I came here, and now it seems I haven't got one. And he would have gone away even more befuddled than, he, than when he arrived. So um, whether you agree with that <laughs> system of thinking or not is, is, um, is, is up to you, but... Um, that was the Buddha's reply. So that, but that's the only occasion where he's asked uh, straight out, yeah, is there no self? And he didn't say no. So what it's really pointing to is um, that any conception that we have that we could refer to as self is going to be wide of the mark. Because what we tend to conceive is always in terms of the body, in terms of feelings, in terms of perceptions, in terms of ideas, concepts, mental structures, mental formations, you know, we, we create an image, a mental idea, uh, a word. Um, and so that the, the Buddha, rather than trying to create some sort of metaphysical description of the true self, or self with a big S, just um, avoided the issue altogether. Um, and very, very similar to some of the, what you find in, in Christianity and somewhat in Islam, Judaism, um, 
took a, a the, what they call a via negativa or the way of negation. Just, just took a, a path of describing what uh, what we are not. So saying, well, if you realize that the body is not self, feelings are not self, perceptions are not self, mental formations are not self. That's like our thoughts, ideas, emotions, any kind of uh, mental activity of that nature. Well, consciousness itself, just the act of, of, of cognizing uh, a particular form. If we all recognize that all of those are not intrinsically who and what we are, if we let go, if we no longer seek for our identity in what we're not, then what is real becomes manifest or, or becomes apparent. So by a process of elimination, you don't have to define what you are, but by simply letting go of the false identification with what we're not, then that reality reveals itself, becomes clear. And so, um, of course, the, the, the mind gets hungry for some sort of definition. Say, ah, so I am the absence of <laughs> the body, feeling, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. No. <laughs> Because then we've created this idea of this, this sort of etheric something or other, the great whatever it is, that is somehow not those other things. And then we create that concept and we hang on to that concept. Or, you know, I am spaceless, timeless, infinite zero. Or whatever you can call it. As Ajahn Sumedha once said, you can call it Montgomery if you like. <laughs> no, Montague, excuse me. <laughs> so you can call it Montague if you like. But um, it's, uh, the point is that the, the, the methodology that the Buddha used and the, where the teachings of anatta are, are, are used is by pinpointing um, the places where we usually take refuge, where we usually establish what we are, how we name ourselves, and pointing out that's not intrinsically who and what we are. That's not... That's not what. That's not me. That's not what I am. That's not myself. So you know, we take. We tend to take. I mean, we don't think I take refuge in my body, but you know, hey, <laughs> when the aches and pains come, it's oh, what's gone? Something's gone wrong with my knee. Oh dear, I wonder what that is. Or my oh my god, that eye problem again. Or uh, or the way I look. You know, the the um, you look in the mirror. I look in the mirror in, in the morning sometimes and think, oh dear. <laughs> and I'm a monk, I'm not supposed to care about these things. You know? And this kind of, this haggard thing looks out at me from the mirror, like, oh dear. Man, those, those bags under the eyes are really, they're developing rapidly. <laughs> I'm definitely uh, middle-aged now. So, you know, what, what's that, what does that say about identification with the body? You know, it's like, there, that's me looking out of the mirror. Oh, is it? Oh. Our identification with our, our gender, you know, being, being a woman, being a man, it's automatic, isn't it? Just the way we judge other people. Oh, it's a man, it's a woman. Just goes without saying, goes without question. Oh, well, you know, she's a woman, of course, yeah. Yeah, I'm a man, of course. No, a no-brainer. <laughs> so it's uh, these these teachings are, are pointing at at these very uh, everyday, ordinary, inarguable assumptions and arguing them. Say, oh, really? 
So, um, you know, the, the breath, uh, the, the air uh, that was in this room when we all came in here this morning. Now, where is it? All the oxygen, carbon dioxide and things that was, that was in this room when we entered 5.30 this morning. What's happened to it? I mean, a bit's come and gone out of the windows. But how much of it's been incorporated into our, our bodies? Is, is, is our bodies. The oxygen turned into energy, keeping us uh, alert, alive. How much of we that was in our bodies, of we the carbon dioxide that we breathed out? Now we, uh, you know, I breathed in all of yours. You know, we've we have intermingled, which might be slightly nauseating. For <laughs> I won't get into things like you know skin particles and <laughs> hair fragments and other such niceties. But uh, you know, it's around. <laughs> you only have to see a shaft of sunlight coming through the the air in a, a room, and you think, wow. Look at all of that. Right? It doesn't disappear when the sunlight vanishes. <laughs> In fact, as, we, as I speak, as we sit here, <laughs> all of that uh, is, is entering, leaving, accumulating, dispersing. 95, 99% of house dust is, is human skin. Ex-human skin, said he, scratching his head. <laughs> so we are we are interrelated <laughs> in many many ways. So you know that 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 um, identification with the body it seems so so natural so so obvious. But then in the in those moments, I say when we we are sitting meditating and the the mind is concentrated. Then you know, is that breath? Is that breath? Is that a male breath or is that female breath? Is that male oxygen or female oxygen? Is that depressed oxygen or enlightened oxygen? Is that carbon dioxide having a good mood or a bad mood? Yeah. You know, but we say, "Oh, I'm in a good mood. I'm in a bad mood. I'm enlightened. I'm depressed. I'm asleep. I'm awake. I'm a man. I'm a woman." Is it beautiful oxygen or, or, or just plain oxygen or ugly oxygen? Yet we might look in the mirror and think, "Ooh, dear," but we don't we don't relate to oxygen that way or carbon dioxide. We're judging each other. You know, layperson, monk, nun. We, we create these as, as sort of eternal, solid, absolute forms. But in fact, they're just conventions constructed by our own um, conditioning, our own imagining, sustained by our, our culture, the way that we, we judge things. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, I, th- I, I grew up, my mother's side of the family is from the continental Europe, and uh, so I grew up thinking I, was, thinking I was a very cosmopolitan person. You know, I used to bop over to, to the continent from England and go to uh, Belgium and France and Austria and Switzerland and places. And, and so uh, I didn't realize that um, <laughs> there was a lot more of the world 
beyond the European mindset and, and then going to Thailand in the, my early 20s um, it was really striking uh, some of the differences that, uh, that there is in, in a Thai culture in the, the way that people uh, relate to certain things so that uh, you know, it'd be quite normal for a total stranger to walk up to you know, to walk up to you on the street or or sit down next to you on the bus and sort of take hold of your arm and start stroking it and saying, "Wow, that's really hairy." <laughs> <laughs> or, "What pale skin! Your skin is so white." Or, or black if you happen to be a you know, African American, which is certainly uh, it's quite shocking to some some. Uh, uh, African-American people, when they go to Thailand, they say, wow, I've never seen anyone as black as this. Which, you know, and this happened to a guy who was, uh, who was in the Black Panthers in Detroit <laughs> in the early 70s. And he was a monk in our monastery in, in Thailand. And the Thai people, it's absolutely normal to them. Or if you're, if you're a large person, they'd say, oh, wow, you're really fat, aren't you? <laughs> Or they, they'd say to me, that, that's the biggest nose I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> wow. And that was just, that's what they call you. They just call you, oh, he's the, the big nose monk. Or the, or, the, or the one monk they used to call the little elephant, because he just used to thump the ground when he, he, he had this very thumping walk. So they called him little elephant. Chang Noi. <laughs> he's, quite, he's quite a big little elephant, actually. <laughs> and it's not insulting in the slightest. There's like absolutely no offence. You know, people sort of high. You know, people in high society were quite. One of Ajahn Chah's greatest supporters um, is called uh, Kunying Dun, which means something like Lady Plump. <laughs> <laughs> she's like a, a very. You know, she's a, 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 a an aristocrat. But that's, uh, what's that, that's what Dun means. It means kind of fatty or plump. You know. And everyone knows her as Kunying Dun. You know, that's what her name is. Or uh, this uh, one time, Ajahn Sumedha was really amused when this couple, this very, very dignified couple, came to visit Amaravati. Um, um, and it was a, they were a royal couple, prince and princess of, of Thailand. And one was, um, the, the fellow was known as Bum. Bum. <laughs> and uh, the, his wife was called Moo, which means pig. <laughs> so they were quite this royal couple happily going around called pig and called Pigsy and Bum. <laughs> Absolutely no. Without a blink, quite happily introduced themselves. Oh, my name is Bum and this is Moo. You know. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, you get these sort of reflections on cultural conditioning which are really helpful to us. You know. you know, how dare you talk about my nose like that? Or, so that's, you know, what we would take as sort of highly personal remarks like, don't say anything about you know, how fat he is. Well, they'll just sort of come up and just sort of take hold of your, your, your spare tire and say, wow, that's amazing. It's, it's really quite extraordinary being around it. One, one of the, the monastery supporters, uh, this very sweet old lady who passed away now, she had, uh, used to come to the monastery every day. She had ten kids and... and Last time I was there in Thailand, she came with, with one of her daughters and said, uh, and, uh, she said, oh, this is my daughter, this is the fat one. <laughs> she, was, she was pretty big. And the, and the daughter just sort of chuckled. Said, yeah, yeah, I'm the fat one. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> the others are all skinny. I'm the fat one. Like, 
you know, you couldn't conceive of, of uh, someone introducing their sort of 250-pound daughter, you know, saying, oh, hi, this is my, this is my daughter Susan, she's the fat one. Yeah. Mother! You know, it's just so that seeing how differently we can, we can see the world, just as, this, as an example of how things that seem kind of inarguable and, and normal, absolute matter-of-fact things, we begin to recognize as, as a like social conditioning. You know, what is beautiful, what is ugly? Yeah, what's, uh, what's a good behavior, what's bad behavior? So that the, the meditation, and as we develop um, the, the quality of, um, of insight, learning to look into the mind, and just seeing all these different um, personae, different characters, the different people that we are, and therefore the different people that others are, is coming and going. Just seeing, appearing, taking shape, dissolving, moment after moment, day after day. The hot one, the enlightened one, the irritated one, the cold one, the hungry one, the overfed one, the diligent one, the lazy one. And learning to recognize, oh, this is just another persona. They come, they go, they change. Is this really me? Is this what, what I am? Is this myself? So these teachings on anatta are really a tool to investigate that habitual uh, identification process. It's that habitual way of judging ourselves. And it's a way of, of like putting a... Um, a sort of conditional ten, you know, a conditional quality on it, uh, like a surrounding it in an atmosphere of well, maybe so, or that's part of the picture, or um, is that a fact? Is that all of the picture? Is that all of the story? And then, as we we look, and we're not trying to create some sort of belief system, but just using us, this as a tool to awaken our own intuitive wisdom, to apply our own intuitive wisdom. That uh, our own uh, innate understanding, um, because we do, uh, every one of us possesses you know, wisdom in full measure. That quality of awareness um, that I've been referring to during the day—it's not—it's uh, not an awareness. It's just like a sort of data reception center, like a video camera that's sort of recording information. But awareness also this this quality of awareness also possesses great wisdom, intelligence, uh, which is intuitive, which is to say it's intrinsically connected to um, an understanding, a direct understanding and a direct appreciation of the orderliness of nature. The orderliness of, of, of Dhamma, of the way things are. So we're tapping into that that recognition, that in our own heart, which knows the way things are, which you, you can use the term intuitive wisdom or intuitive awareness to, to refer to. So it's really training, by applying insight, what we're doing is training ourselves to, to listen to that wisdom, to trust that, to, to view the experience of, of the moment from that point, from, from this center. So that we're recognizing a judgment of being, uh, being beautiful, being ugly, being old, being young, being a woman, being a man, 
uh, being this or that, whatever it might be. The way we judge the world around us, this is good, that's bad, this is beautiful, that's ugly. This is delicious, this is, this is, uh, this is uh, horrible. It's, say, recognizing with that quality of intuitive wisdom that these are, these are judgments. This is a way of, one way of looking at it. It's, and the heart knows it isn't the whole story. It couldn't be the whole story. The heart knows that. We don't have to make ourselves believe it because our heart already understands that to be true, knows it to be true. Now, um, these, the words I'm saying, you shouldn't just you know, believe or, or expect, you, should, you shouldn't feel you're expected to, to believe this, but um, taking these as, as themes to, and seeing how they resonate within us. You know, does, this, does this make sense? Does it have a ring of truth to it? So the, the, we take the teachings on anatta and use maybe these sort of verbal reflections and asking ourselves questions like, well, what makes this me? Or what makes this mine? Is this really good? What makes this bad? And then using that kind of ref- verbal reflection, then that, say, uh, opens the door to that intuitive wisdom which says, yeah, right. It's just the body coming and going and changing. When the mind is, is uh, when we say that we're sitting in meditation and the eyes are closed, we're paying attention inwardly and there's a quality of spaciousness. At that time, what, what is the body? It's like a, a constellation of, of sensations somewhere in the field of awareness. Now is that awareness, what, what shape does that awareness have? Is it tall, is it short? Is it old, is it, is it young? Is it female or male? Is it beautiful or ugly? Does it have a nationality? Does it have a personal history? Does it have a future, a past? So we begin to recognize that if, if, we, are any, if we can say that we are anything, you can say that well, if anything is real, then that quality of, of, of awareness, of intuitive wisdom, knowing, is, is real. That's the, if you like, the, the back wall that we, uh, or the ground that we, uh, we come to or that we, we rest from. And that the qualities of old, young, beautiful, ugly, inside, outside, uh, I like, I don't like, the world, people out there, me in here, that all of those uh, appearances take shape in this within this, this sphere of, of knowing, of awareness. But that awareness itself has no shape, no form. The Buddha said, Nibbana has no color. So that in, as I was saying last night about taking refuge, this act of, of letting go of, this, of the imputed solidity and validity of, of the personality, of, of judgments, of opinions, of perceptions, the letting go of that, that solidity and coming to, to rest in that awareness, that knowing. This is what we mean by taking refuge in Buddha. And it's a refuge because um, that awareness can, can, can contain the beautiful, the ugly, the pleasant, the painful, success, failure, 
mediocrity. It can contain what we call me, it can contain what we call you, it it can contain the whole universe, internal and external, large and small. It knows that. It knows that the qualities... uh, It also knows them coming, going, changing. And so there's this quality of of freedom, of invulnerability. That's like a mirror. Like a mirror can reflect the sacred and the profane, the beautiful, the ugly, the interesting, uh, and the, the boring. And the mirror is totally uh, un- is unembellished by the beautiful and untainted by the by the the corrupt or the painful. So, in the same way, our own uh, intuitive wisdom, our own, the quality of awareness itself, the Buddha mind, similarly is is uh, is uncolored, untainted unflustered by anything that it reflects, anything that it receives, anything that it knows. That's why it's a refuge. If it, if it wasn't, it wouldn't be a refuge. It wouldn't be the jewel. It wouldn't be of, of ultimate worth, of ultimate value. So the aim in, in the practice that we're doing is to simply cultivate that quality of, of letting go of the conditioning that uh, we've all been subject to the uh, the judgments of, of ourselves as being this person or that person as being this way or that way. Just learning to see through them, see their transparency, and then in that seeing through, then we find ourselves automatically being that knowing, being that that Buddha, that Buddha wisdom. And you know. It, this is uh, i'm just saying this and you know people don't have to believe me but uh, it's uh, let us suggest that the the wisdom of of your own mind the the quality of awareness that's that with which you are receiving this very moment right now there's absolutely no difference between that and the 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 quality of of knowing wisdom the mind of a buddha of an enlightened being. It's the same wisdom, it's the same awareness. It's like water, it's like oxygen. It's just it's the same. Whether it's the water in the blood in the body of a Buddha or the water in the in, in your body, the fabric of the mind, the nature of the mind. It's the same. How could it be different? Differences come because of the depth of, of our, our habituation to uh, to fears, to impulses, to attachment, to opinions, to identification with the body, the personality, my personal history, etc., etc., etc. That's the differences come in that the depth of of uh, that identification. But the the intrinsic fabric of mind. Is exactly the same. So at the beginning, I was saying how you know, we take everything personally. Isn't it amazing how when you when you experience a wave of of anger, then or, or you think of yourself as an angry person or a fearful person? Isn't it amazing how how I can believe that you know I I created fear. I am the producer of fear. 
It's like no one ever was, no, no, no other person, other being was ever fearful before. That I'm the, the one who's produced fear in the universe. That I am actually sort of creating it out of nothing. Or anger, or, or desire, greed. I mean, we take it so personally, don't we? we say, I've, got a, I've got a greed problem, or I've got a fear problem. I am, uh, I'm so angry. And we don't necessarily think it through. We don't kind of walk ourselves through it. But, and this is what I found for myself, was that I was relating to my own uh, feelings of, of fear or desire, whatever it might have been. I'm, I'm relating to this like, you know, I created this. As if it didn't exist in the universe before I, I came along. And I've conjured this up. And, and, uh, and when you look at it, or even just think that way, you realize, well, that's totally ridiculous. But on an emotional level, one can, one can take it that way. Rather than thinking, well, as a human being, um, here we are, body and mind, born with one of these things, so it's fully equipped to, expe- to be able to produce happiness and kindness, to, be, to, to experience kind of rage and frustration, it can experience fear, it can experience joy, it can experience anger, destructiveness, it can experience... Uh, Everything. <laughs> so it's built to generate these feelings. Hot and cold, pleasure and pain. It's rigged for the whole thing. <laughs> this, the, you know, the, the device has got all these attributes built into it. So is there any surprise when certain buttons get pushed, then you, know, you get an anger reaction, or you get a love reaction, you get an attraction reaction, you get an aversion reaction, because that's what the system is built to do. It's not like I generated it. Like when certain experiences arrive, then certain emotional responses, reactions come forth. So when someone, some, someone close to us passes away and dies, someone in our family or someone that we've loved, they pass away and die, and then we feel grief. And then, again, we can take it so personally, like, oh, I've got this, this big problem with with grief, I should get over it. Yeah, I'm really. Uh, I shouldn't be grieving so much. I should be. I should be non-attached. <laughs> Everything that arises passes away. <laughs> Let go. Yeah, so we can we can come at it with a very from a theoretical position. And and yet, that we don't recognize that part of the human condition is that. You know the the karmic result of having drawn close to another being, and having had feelings of of, uh, of closeness and affection, when those those uh, when their separation happens, then grief is felt. It's just like if you if you walk outside with a with a you know, a thin shirt on and it's cold, you'll start shivering. It's not a big surprise. Or if the you know the sun is blazing hot, and you've got a jacket on, you'll start to get sweaty. It's not a surprise. It's not. It's not a personal failing, <laughs> or even or whatever. You know, it could be. You can relate to things as a personal achievement. You know, look at me. You know how joyful I am, or look at me how how intelligent I am. We. It's a big mistake to think it, to take it so personally. But, uh, 
I remember once reading about uh, an interview with a, a man from the Iroquois, and um, he was talking about the, the kind of cultural outlook that they had. Uh, he was he's trained in in his tribe, and he was describing how so if I'm in a if I'm in a foot race with the other young men in the tribe, and we we race, and I and I win the race, I don't think. Wow, I'm the best. I think uh, how grateful I am to my ancestors. Because it's not just me racing, it's all of the ancestors who preceded me. My great grand, my great 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 grandparents, my great great grandparents and grandparents and parents. It's like, how could I be here if it wasn't for all of those guys behind me? So it's not just me, the great me racing and winning. But it's this. There's a sense of gratitude of oh, how wonderful that there's all of this uh, this chain of uh, of um, generations have, have have come to this point where this excellence can be experienced. Um, and that was such a novel idea. I mean, I remember reading it, thinking, oh, <laughs> what a concept! <laughs> because the the conditioning just doesn't go that way. We don't think in those terms. So similarly, uh, and the main problem with us in the West is, is generally in, the, in, the, in the, the, the direction of self-criticism rather than self-aggrandizement. Is that not too much of an assumption to, to make? How many people here have problems with self-aggrandizement? Right. Self-criticism? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's usually the overwhelming feature. So... This is what we do. We tend to take our our small-mindedness or our fearfulness or our greediness, the feelings of anger or lust or, or aversion, impatience, and we make them personal rather than thinking, well, this is just part of the human condition. Waves of irritation, attraction, aversion, they arise, they cease. Waves of fear, waves of, of love and hate, they arise, they cease. It's not personal. So that the the practice is helping us to, in this way of starting to to see through these habitual judgments, to see it's dhamma, it's all the way of nature. This is the part of the patterns of nature: feelings of attraction, aversion, fear, desire, friendliness, unfriendliness. This is the, the patterns of nature that that we experience. And the more that we learn to, to let go and not be blindly dragged around or identified with it, then what happens is that the, the innate responsiveness of the heart can function. Like last night we, we chanted the, uh, the Brahma Viharas, the divine abidings. Uh, loving, uh, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, serenity. And these are the the way that the heart responds from a place of, of, of uh, emptiness and place of, of letting go, place of, of non-attachment, that we, the heart intrinsically responds to the different situations that are experienced with kindness or compassion, with sympathetic joy, you know, happiness at the good fortune of others, or with, uh, with serenity, equanimity, that uh, these are the, the kind of mature emotions 
that uh, this is the way the heart responds from a place of integration and maturity, a place of freedom to, to different situations. So don't think when we talk about you know, resting in awareness or, or non-attachment that we're, we're trying to just sterilize. We, we turn ourselves into a, a sterilized data reception unit. <laughs> sort of clocking, you know, seeing, hearing, feeling, thinking, emoting, grief for dead mother, <laughs> feeling cold, go find jacket. <laughs> it's not that way at all. It actually frees our life up to be able to function in a totally natural, open and spontaneous way. And so we find that we can relate with, with kindness. One moment we can be calm and, and, and friendly. We can be fierce and, and uh, in, uh, intense. We can be very cool and stable. We can be you know, infinitely compassionate, warm. Yeah, without thinking about it, just responding like a tree bending in the wind. Being around my own uh, teacher, Ajahn Chah in Thailand, it was, he was uh, such a, an amazingly... Um, kind of, he'd, he'd let go of everything to such an extent that sometimes just... I mean, I couldn't even speak Thai very well, but just watching him operate, you could see him so related... Because like, in Thailand, they don't do this sort of individual interview thing. It's like all spiritual processing happens in public. <laughs> And uh, so he, he would generally sit under his hut and receive people all day. And so there might be one person here who is of um, having uh, some kind of profound insight or deep meditation experience, and there's someone here who wants their, you know, their, their baby blessed, and there's someone over here whose his husband has, has just left her, and some, of, some guy over here who's, who's um, taken a second wife and is upset because you know, his... His first wife is is, uh, <laughs> is criticizing him for this, and then someone over here is who um, wants to disrobe, and and you'd find Ajahn Chah like kind of the conductor of the orchestra, just kind of having the whole lot on the boil, like a bit of compassion over here, some equanimity over there, and a bit of <laughs> a clobber over the head, the the guy in the back, you know, <laughs> all happening at once, you know, and just and like and 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 looking at him, say, how's he doing this, and and realize there's absolutely nobody home, but yet someone kind of so totally alive at the same time, completely responsive. And so being comforting to the, and friendly to the, you know, to the, the mother with a little baby and, and you know, blasting the guy with the, you know, with, who's getting himself a second wife and being kind of uh, informative and, and, and analytical about the meditation experience of this character over here. And without, but not doing anything. No, no sense of a person trying to do something but just through that profound abandonment, letting go, and just letting the heart respond, like letting the Dhamma respond to the... Uh, it's like basically getting out of the way, just letting the, the Dhamma respond to itself. The Dhamma of, of your own nature responding to the Dhamma of the, the nature around you. So that's really what it is. Just, it's not a matter of practicing something to get somewhere doing something to become something else. But uh, yeah, that 
it's really our efforts are geared towards this profound abandonment, letting go, so that uh, that which is already here, that which is our own nature, that which is uh, the Dhamma, can can function without obstruction. Which is kind of ironic because it really looks like there's a lot of people here doing something. <laughs> we all travel vast distances. You know, I came three thousand miles here to to do nothing. <laughs> but I will consider my if I if I find that I'm doing something, I will consider that I've failed. So, <laughs> but so it looks like there's a people doing something from the outside. Me practicing meditation, me teaching the Dhamma. And so that there's that form, it can look that uh, we apply that kind of um, effort as an effort. But it's, not, it's an effort which is not cast in the form of a person who is, who is uh, doing something, trying to get some particular result. So it's, it's an, a kind of ironic conundrum, and so you know, it's, the mind said, "Well, how can I do something but not do it? How can I kind of sit here and not meditate?" So well, these kind of themes we'll be exploring in the next over the next few days, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll illuminate that. But um, just to clarify that basic principle, I think it's, it's very helpful to see that. Uh, as long as we cast the practice in the form of me doing something, even me absolutely committed 100% to doing, to doing something terribly noble and good and purifying, if, it's, if, if we're locked into that form, the result will be dukkha. Because we're, 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 we're starting out from a, from a paradigm which is essentially ignorant. We're starting out from the, there's a me here, who's got to do something to become something else. So as soon as we've locked that in, then we've, we've committed ourselves to the ignorant point of view, to avijja. So that it's like, even though that might be seen on a conventional level quite reasonable, to be me doing something, me coming on a retreat, me uh, studying Buddha Dharma, me developing the meditation. It's like a, Practicing that, but also seeing the emptiness of that, so that then we are able to to use the forms of the retreat, the uh, practices, as a way of relinquishment, as a way of coming from the place of vijja, of knowing, of awareness, of of not self, not starting from the position of me, this person, but but letting go of that and recognizing well there is the awareness there's the rising and passing of conditions there's sight, sound, smell, taste, touch coming and going this is the refuge this is why we begin by taking refuge so it's like that act of taking refuge we bow we put you know this character down below the rest <laughs> so that uh, it's like making the gesture of of um, putting the self-centered view below, uh, at least in physical form, the, the triple gem, 
So that that act of refuge is that act of inclining towards vijja, towards knowing, towards awareness, inclining towards the perspective of of not self, of selflessness, of the intention of letting go of that, seeing through that. So I offer these words for consideration this evening. <clears throat>